Before you uh, head to Proverbs, I'm going to head you off at the pass and direct you back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, as we start back into what's turned into a, a series, really, a, a little mini-series in chapter 5 of Proverbs, where we find ourselves today, we're talking about a strategy to uh, fight and avoid the temptation of sexual sin. And um, I want to start back in the beginning because where Solomon goes today is is not so much by telling us things that we shouldn't do. That's where uh, he's had us the last several weeks, several verses in Proverbs 5. Uh, he's going to turn the corner now in Proverbs 5 and he's going to talk about what we should do. And, and this is great for... Um, uh, All of you have heard Pastor Terry and I and others talk about this, that um, biblical change, if you're you're working on an area of your life, um, it's not, uh, you never realize lasting change when you just put all your effort at trying to stop the wrong thing, uh, the, the sinful temptation, the sinful activity, whatever it is, that we change and grow when we stop doing the wrong thing and then we replace it with the right thing. And I think one of the ways that many Christian families have failed in parenting, and even many churches have failed in raising, uh, supplementing what the parents are doing with young people, with teenagers, is that the message of the church regarding sexual intimacy and sexual sin has simply been to tell young people to wait till you're married. And that's true, but that's only part of the equation, and I think that may be why... um, uh, this is such a, a difficult subject, and, and even in good churches and good families, so many young people uh, get in situations where they end up compromising or they go into marriage uh, woefully ignorant of a biblical view of intimacy. So I want to take you back to Genesis because I want to show you this. Um, where does God designed physical intimacy. He designed sexual relations in the context of marriage. Uh, in God's eyes, in God's design, in his wisdom, um, this is a good thing. This is a very good um, part of the marriage relationship that he ordained and designed. And uh, what I want to show you is kind of how this works and how in our sin, in our fallenness, it gets hijacked. If, if I could do that. Look at Genesis chapter 1. This, of course, is the account of creation. God makes the the entire universe in six normal days. Uh, the the climax of that day, the high point of, of the creation week, is uh, the latter half of day number six, where God says in chapter 1, verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, meaning humanity, male and female, he created them. And here we have the, the beginning of creation, and, and this is where any discussion of sexual relations and marriage really has to start, because God makes, at the very beginning, he creates a, a man and a woman who would be under God. That, that's the focus of this, that man, a man and a woman are made, but they're, they're not made isolated and they're not made disconnected. They are made by this God and under this God and in fellowship with this God. And that's why when we think about a, a boy-girl relationship, a husband and wife coming together, it all starts with their relationship to God. Long before you know, there's dating and, and, and friendship and all of that, there needs to be a fundamental compatibility of this man and this woman under their God. And, of course, the New Testament echoes that, doesn't it? It's going to say things like this. Uh, well, she can be married, but only in the Lord, meaning only an unbeliever. Or uh, when Paul tells the Corinthians that we shouldn't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. There's that, that fundamental base compatibility that says if a man and a woman are interested in being married, there has to be an acknowledgement that that relationship is under God, so they, they come together united first and foremost in terms of the oneness of their marriage. They come together as uh, a man and a woman under the authority of God and in relationship with Him. Now notice, once, once that sort of relationship is established under God, watch where this goes. Turn, turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, and we know, uh, you guys know this text well, uh, God um, plants a garden. He begins to um, 
uh, produce animals that were then brought to Adam who would name them. And that whole exercise was designed to show Adam that he was alone and there was, there was no partner that was suitable for him. There, there was no female version of the human species at that point. So let's pick it up if we, if we look back down at, um, Oh, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. We'll pick it up there. It says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Okay, and then there's that exercise that I mentioned. And, um, of course, at the end of that exercise, Adam names all these animals. It's obvious to him there's a male and female uh, version of each one of these species. And yet his conclusion, Adam's conclusion, the point of the exercise is Adam says... There's no one like me, okay? Um, That was the point. So um, the end of uh, verse 20 there says, uh, For Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of the ribs, closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, it's hard to see because we've heard that in weddings. We've read this perhaps in the Bible dozens of times. But that little, that little thing that Adam says there, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, what he's doing there is he's crafting a covenant. He's making a formal promise to this woman for marriage, for the marriage relationship. In fact, um, for you Bible scholars in the audience, if you study bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, you study that, that phrase, you will find it elsewhere in the Bible in formulas of covenant, in formulas of formal association between parties. And that's how we know this is an early version of what we would think of as marriage vows. Okay, So, so under their relationship with God, this man and this woman, what are they going to do? Now they're going to make a covenant. Okay. What I'm trying to do is just show you where this whole marriage thing came from. Okay. It starts with a man and woman under God, united under God, compatible in their faith under God. Then they make a covenant. Now, now notice what this covenant is. This covenant is really a covenant of what we might call oneness. And we've already seen some of the dimensions of that oneness. Just look back at the text. Notice where this starts in verse 18. It is not good for the man to be alone. That's where it starts. So this covenant, this oneness, is first of all one of companionship. Or we might say friendship. And we see in God's design for marriage, a man and a woman would be friends. They would be companions. They would be, you know, really in God's design, a closer friend than any other human being would be. Okay, so under God, there's the compatibility. They're under God. They share a faith in God. And then next, that man and woman decide to make a covenant, a formal pledge to one another under God of oneness. And one dimension of that is companionship and friendship. Notice a second dimension, if we look back at the text, a second dimension is that of a, we might call it a a common purpose or roles, because, chapter 2, verse 18, I will make him a helper suitable for him. What's that? That's saying that Eve has a particular role in this relationship. She is to be Adam's helper, and the word um, suitable means comparable to him and yet complementing him. The man and the woman are not the same, right? They're, they're very different. They come with different skill sets, different gifts, different talents, different ways of looking at things, and yet they're going to come together in companionship with a common purpose, but, as we see here, with different roles. She's coming to be the helper to Adam. We've already seen the leadership of Adam, the headship of Adam. He's made first. God charges him as the family unit leader with the commands to not tree from, eat from the tree in the center of the garden. Uh, he is charged with the naming of the animals. So he has all these leadership functions. He assumes that role of headship and leader. She assumes the role of the helper suitable, the one who comes and helps and complements what Adam is called to do. Now we think about this in the context of marriage because we're building a paradigm of marriage here. You know what that means? If, if there's a purpose to marriage, if there's a role, that assumes there's a willingness to do that. 
And when Pastor Terry and I do pre-marriage counseling, one of the things we're trying to figure out is, does this couple, first of all, understand their roles, and are they willing to follow them? Because in making this covenant before God, they're saying we are purposing to come together in marriage to fulfill these roles that God designs. So they're, they're, it assumes a willingness uh, a leadership role. Um, we, we read back in chapter uh, one. Uh, there's children that come from this relationship. Are they open to children? Are they open to God's purposes for marriage? But also, not just a willingness for a couple before they make this covenant. Not just that there's a willingness to do this, but we might also ask a second question: Are they capable of doing it? Are they mature enough as a man and a woman to follow these roles? And, and, and frankly, um, if you're a young lady. And you're looking around going, where are the mature men? You know, we got these 25-year-olds that are acting like they're still in fifth grade with their video games and with their inability to hold a job and their inability to communicate, you know, aside from grunts and, and occasional, you know, inaudible noises and things like that. And, and that's a real problem, isn't it? Because this man and this woman have to be able to have the maturity to do what God says they ought to do when they make this covenant. And notice also, there's exclusivity. Look at at, at verse uh, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So now there's this exclusivity part of it, where the two are becoming one. Okay, so they come together in friendship and companionship. They come together with a common purpose, with these complementary roles. They come together in oneness with exclusivity. They're willing to leave their father and mother to become one. That emphasizes the monogamy of the relationship, the fidelity of the relationship, the faithfulness of the relationship. Are they willing to be faithful? What does the vow say? Forsaking all others and committing yourself only to him or only to her. So we see all of this, right? Now, with, with, with all that in mind, okay, all that is built, their relationship is under God, they're in fellowship with God, they have a common faith in God, they're willing to make a formal covenant, a, a formal marriage pledge of oneness and companionship in the purposes and roles. They have enough maturity to do that, they're willing to do that. There, there is a commitment to exclusivity, to faithfulness, leaving father and mother, becoming one. And then, and then, look at verse 24, the two shall become one flesh. Now, if you're following me, you notice what? The physical intimacy in their relationship is just the physical manifestation of the whole thing. It's a picture of the oneness that a couple is coming together to do in the covenant of marriage. The physical sexual union is the top layer of the oneness that God designs in the making of this marriage covenant under God. Okay, That's God's design for marriage. And, and when we start with what God says, we see some very obvious things. What do most young people and what do most old people think about the physical relationship between a man and a woman? They think that's what a relationship is all about. And that's the first thing they go to. And yet, according to God, the physical is the last thing that should happen. And it only happens under the bond, the union of a marriage covenant. And I think, I think that just, you know, you may be saying, well, yeah, you know, I, I know that. I've, I've sat under good teaching. I, I see that. But do you know, do you know how radical that is today? That the sexual relationship ought to be the last and final piece of a whole sequence of committing to oneness and unity in a relationship, but most importantly, that that relationship would be connected and under God's authority, and secondly, in the context of a marriage covenant. And any physical sexual activity that happens between people that is not in this paradigm is by very definition... A sinful pursuit. Because it's, 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 uh, you're taking one aspect of God's design and you're breaking it off from the whole thing. And, and that's why, um, 
That's why if you're a married person and you understand this and by God's grace you have a, a marriage relationship that is seeking to live out this sort of oneness, that's why, that's why sexual intimacy actually drives you closer together, not just physically, but in the whole relationship. It's supposed to do that. That, That's God's design. And that's why all these other people that are pursuing physical relationships outside of the bonds of marriage, what do they do? They go from partner to partner to partner to partner. It gets more perverse. They try different things that are even more of an abomination in what they're doing. That's why, because they've taken one beautiful part of God's design for marriage. They've ripped it out of that context, and they're pursuing it as an end to itself, and they're wondering why does this not satisfy me why do i have to keep looking for different people or or becoming more perverse in in how that's pursued And, and again so if we see it in god's design it makes total sense and it brings lasting satisfaction not just as the physical part of the relationship is built but as physical intimacy in marriage helps to build the whole unity and oneness in the relationship are you with me is this making sense Okay, this, this is what our young people need to hear. It's not that sex is wrong. It's not that physical intimacy is wrong. It's not even that you're just supposed to wait till you're married. It's look at God's beautiful design for this. Look at how this, this special part of the relationship builds the whole of what God has for you in a relationship with one other person for the rest of your life. That person that's your best friend, that person that you team up with to have children, to raise children, to do gospel ministry in your home, that one person that you're going to be faithful to your whole life, that one person you're going to walk with, as it says, you know, in whether you're richer or poor, in sickness and in health, you know, when your body starts falling apart, you can't hear, you can't see, and all these things are going, and you know, that person is with you. What a wonderful design of God to do that. So that's where we start, is to see God's beautiful design. And and with that introduction, uh, turn with me now to Proverbs chapter 5, because Solomon is going to turn from defensive now to offensive. He's been telling us some strategies as Solomon, a dad, uh, sits down with his sons, his children, and and he's talking to them about the dangers of sexual sin. And notice where we've been. He says, if you're going to avoid sexual sin, if you're going to avoid um, sexual temptation, and and sexual temptation is all around us, it's inside of us because of our our uh, fallenness. It's outside of us in terms of the world. So what's what's the strategy? What, what how do we train our young people? How do we arm ourselves to avoid sexual sin. We've seen a couple of strategies in the first couple verses. We saw the the strategy of arming yourself with wisdom from God's Word. We have to be in the text, building ourselves up in the Word of God. Secondly, we saw the need to understand the deceitfulness and destructiveness of immorality, that that part of of overcoming sexual sin, like, like any like any sin, is seeing through the deceit, the, the promise that it's offering, but that promise is, is built on lies and things that aren't true. We saw number three, don't go anywhere near temptation. Um, he, uh, he charges his, uh, his children here in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, don't go near sexual temptation. In the context, he's talking particularly about the woman who is not your wife, the we call uh, the text calls her the strange woman, the foreigner. In that uh, she is not the wife of your youth; she is not the husband of your youth. It's somebody else, and and so the Bible says, don't go near a person that uh, creates a sexual temptation or somebody that is interested in some sort of sexual sin. Uh, avoid that temptation altogether. And then last time we looked at some of the long, long-term consequences, the high price you pay for the rest of your life, your hard-earned goods go to the house of a foreigner, he says. That's the, the ancient version of child support. Verse 11, he says, think about the end of your life and the eternal consequences when you groan at your final end and your flesh and your body have failed you. And you realize that your choices underneath of which is a lack of faith in God leads you to eternal destruction. And sexual temptation is is one of the, as we're going to see here today, one of the, the, um, 
uh, the sins in which the Bible says you can get get wrapped up, almost like you're wrapped up in ropes, wrapped up in cords, and, and it, it chokes you, it kills you, it trips you up. He says, rehearse the regret and guilt you will have. In verses 12 and 13, he says, I've not listened to the voice of my teachers. Uh, I, I've hated instruction. I, I've, I've spurned reproof. There's regret. There's guilt that comes. Solomon says, son, now is the time to think about that. Think about the other side of falling into this sin and what your life's going to be like. Create that ugly picture in your mind that will cause you to think twice before you do something that you'll regret for the rest of your life. And then the fourth thing, meditate on the shame you will bring upon your testimony to others. He says in verse 14, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. As the the congregation found out, the the nation of Israel, the the worshipers, uh, he says, think about that. Now, those are all defensive strategies. Have you noticed that? Uh, well, I guess not. Arm yourself with wisdom from God's word is really a, a, an offensive. But these last three have really been defensive. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Watch this now. Number five, embrace God-honoring intimacy in its proper context. Marriage. And I, and I love this because this is Solomon modeling for us as parents and grandparents, even great-grandparents. Here's how you talk to your kids about that. If all we have is a list of of do nots and threats and, and you know, don't ever do this, the, the equation is imbalanced and, and we, we've not helped our children. In fact, um, even it's interesting, um, one of the things Pastor and I get to do is a lot of premarital counseling and whatnot and, and um, it's amazing to me how many young people growing up in our church or growing up, maybe it's another church that I, you know, we know of and we say, man, that's a great church. We know what they, they've got great families. And we come to talk about physical intimacy in marriage and the premarital counseling. And, and we say, well, what do you think about that? And they say, well, you know, we know, we, we know we're supposed to wait till marriage. You're right. Great. What else? And, and this is going to sound weird. They do not have a theology of physical intimacy. They do not have a well-developed theology of physical intimacy. You say, we're supposed to have a theology of physical It's in the Bible. And we ought to have a theology that is, is comprehensive enough to address all of life. And, and so, so you know, for example, what I see is a young man who has struggled with sexual lust since he was 12. And by God's grace, he has waited until marriage, and then what does he do? He takes that whole worldly, sinful, selfish, corrupt theology of intimacy, and he directs it now at his wife. And he sins against his wife, because he's bringing a completely corrupt and sinful and wicked worldview of intimacy into the marriage. And and if that doesn't make sense, there is a thousand things different between sexual lust and biblical love. Right? Sexual lust is selfish. Biblical love is selfless. Right? Sexual lust is about getting. Biblical love is about giving. Sexual lust is like a shotgun. It's directed at all sorts of people and all sorts of opportunities. Biblical love is like a, like a rifle. It's, it's directed at one person, that person you covenant with in marriage. It's exclusive in that way. Um, sexual lust requires absolutely no character. If you have a pulse, you will struggle with sexual sin. That's the only qualification is that you have a pulse. If you're going to be somebody that biblically loves your wife or your husband, you have to be a godly person. Because it requires patience. It requires considering others as more important than yourself. It requires prayer. It requires self-control. It requires communication. It requires understanding. It requires gentleness. It requires kindness. That's why I say, uh, uh, young people, if you want to have a marriage where physical intimacy is a healthy and wonderful part, the prerequisite of that is you have to be a godly person. There, there is no healthy, wonderful intimacy in marriage without godly character. It's the prerequisite. And that's why so many couples, even Christian couples, struggle with that. Is that they, they don't think of it as 
something that I have to be a godly person to enjoy, but you do. So here we are, and Solomon turns the corner, and he says, son, let's talk about this now. Not the things that you shouldn't do, but the things that you ought to do, the things you ought to develop. Uh, look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets. Let them be for yours alone and not for strangers with you. What's he saying here? In the ancient day, of course, you know, you didn't just go turn on the faucet and the water comes out because you had a well-developed, you know, water delivery system in your town. That's not how it worked. The typically wells would be dug and you would transport that water back to your location and you would store it in a cistern. In fact, Lisa and I were in uh, Israel in, um, last fall and, um, both in, uh, uh, in, in Jerusalem proper and some of the other locations we looked at, even in, um, uh, down in, um, uh, the Dead Sea, when we were there at the um, the Qumran site, the Dead Sea Scrolls site, um, cisterns were all a part of the archaeology that had been unearthed because that's where you kept water until you were ready to use it. And, and Solomon takes that analogy and he says, son, think about this. Um, it would be stealing for us to go to neighbors, the neighbors across the street and take water from their cistern, right? You'd agree with me? Yeah, Dad, that'd be stealing. Okay, so he says, think about that then. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Don't disperse your water in the streets. Don't waste it. Don't give it to others. Verse 17, let them be for yours alone and not for strangers with you. So we understand we understand what he's saying here about cisterns, storing water. Everybody has their own. It's exclusive to you. You don't waste it. You don't share it with other people. It's yours to enjoy alone. Now, what does that mean? Here's where the metaphor comes in. And this is where the, the Bible is, um, the Bible's a really good example. H- how should we talk about sexual intimacy in marriage? Why, how should we talk about sexual things? I think the Bible is a, is a great example of how to do that. The Bible is going to get um, uncomfortably specific here in a little bit. I'm just warning you, okay? But... Notice how the Bible presents this in a way that is above reproach. It uses language that keeps our minds from being tempted into sin. It's not derogatory. It's not street language that would be uh, unbecoming of those of us that follow Christ and, and name him as our Lord. And one of the ways Solomon gets his point across, he, he has to talk about these things with his children, but one of the ways he's going to do that, he's going to use an analogy. So in this context, water is the symbol for sexual intimacy in marriage. Okay, that, That's the thing to think about. Water is the symbol for sexual intimacy in marriage. The cistern or the source of the water is what? The person's spouse. Right? So we see that. So when he says drink water from your own cistern, we translate that analogy to say, son, enjoy physical intimacy only with your spouse. That's what he's saying. You you see the analogy there? Makes sense? Okay, I think we all follow that. Don't waste it. Don't share it with others. Uh, Let it be for yours alone, not for strangers with you. Now, now here's where the theology gets pretty radical. Okay? Look at this. Um, And let's let's start building an outline here. So, So the first thing is, intimacy is exclusively for you and your spouse. Don't share it with anyone else. Okay? That's kind of the first point there. It's exclusive for you and your spouse, don't share it with anyone else. Now notice this, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now again, we have, we have he's talking analogy again. So what is he saying? What's that word fountain mean? We said the cistern is the source of the water. That's the spouse. Here's another metaphor for the source of the intimacy is the fountain, okay? So the fountain, again, is representative of the person's spouse. Now, with that in mind, what is verse 18 saying? This is physical intimacy theology 101. Verse 18, what's what's intimacy about? Let, let, me, let me read it for you, translating... The symbolism, okay? Let your spouse be blessed. And we know that's the right way to understand it because of the parallel where where the metaphor goes away. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
So, so here's, young people, if you, if you miss everything else, th- this, is, this is God's wisdom, God's design, God's wonderful plan for your satisfaction in marriage one day. And it is 180 degrees out of phase from everything you've heard about sexual intimacy in the culture. Okay, you ready for this? Sexual intimacy is about blessing your spouse. It's about giving. It's about satisfying. It's about blessing your companion your, that you have covenant with for life. Why is that so radical? Because in, in every other context, the message is this is about you and how you feel. And God says, no, it's not. It's primarily about you blessing your spouse. And uh, you say, are we sure that's it? All we have to do is cross-reference 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, Your body is not your own. It's for the blessing of your spouse, he says to both husbands and wives. So he says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and be exhilarated always with her love. Yes, the Bible said that. And we understand that the Bible presents this beautiful picture of intimacy in marriage and and gets even graphic to some degree as it is designed in by God in the context of marriage. God says that. He says it's supposed to be an enjoyable and exhilarating experience when accomplished in the context of the marriage relationship. But but notice notice this. He doesn't tell his son be exhilarated with her body. What does he say? Body's part of it. Verse 19, be exhilarated always with her her love. Do you see what Solomon... There is is a a 12-part sermon series of wisdom in that verse alone. And here's what I mean. Solomon is communicating to his sons, look at this. There is passion, there is satisfaction, there is exhilaration, there, there is wonderful pleasure that happens, but it's not all physical. It's be exhilarated in the relationship. That's That's a physical feeling-oriented part of the satisfaction and the exhilaration that happens with a husband and wife in the context of marriage of the whole relationship, of the love that characterizes this relationship between husband and wife. So again, you see, that this is think of the wisdom of this. This is why millions and probably billions of people that are, are pursuing satisfaction in the physical part of a man-woman relationship alone, that's why they come away from that and it does nothing for them ultimately. Because the exhilaration is never designed to be in the physical alone. The physical serves the whole of the relationship to be exhilarated and satisfied and contented in that covenant relationship, that friendship that a man and a woman have with one another. That's what's satisfying. And the physical is just one part that serves the whole in that. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, now notice here, um, God is very upfront in this that he designed even our bodies in a way that are supposed to be attractive to one another. And, and, and Solomon and, and God who inspired this says, it is right to say, I'm attracted to my wife. That's a good thing. So so I'd say to teenagers, it's a good thing when in your marriage you're attracted to the body of your wife or vice versa, uh, a wife to her husband. But here's the thing, and and you just be quiet and listen, okay? Um, In God's design, God designed a private areas of a woman's body to be sexually attractive to a man. By God's wonderful design, that's how he did it. But God never intended for those private areas to be revealed to any other man other than that woman's husband. 
You see that? And that, and that's why, if, if you think of those two things, that's why the Bible is always saying in our fallenness now, right? Because we live in a fallen world where God's design is corrupted by sin. But that's why in a fallen world, God's always telling men, guard your eyes. Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes, right? Guard your eyes. Don't let your heart follow your eyes. Um, you know, don't go near. Don't let her entice you. The, because of God's design that there will be sexual attraction when that part of a woman's body is revealed, God says, men, guard your eyes from that. Because if you don't, that design will kick in and you will feel attraction there that ought only to be for your wife. You with me? Okay? And what, is, what does God then say to women? Again, in the fallenness of sin, because of a corrupted world we live in, what does he say to women? Dress modestly. Why? Keep those parts of your body covered. Don't reveal them to anyone except your husband. Why? Because if you do, now you're, now you're creating that attraction, which is God's design, but isn't supposed to happen with anyone except your husband. Do you see that? So so we affirm the wisdom and the glory and and the wonder of of this overwhelmingly powerful attraction between a man and a woman in this context. But because of our fallenness, because of our sin, a man has to continue to guard his eyes and a woman has to be, be very careful to keep those parts of her body covered in modesty so that that process is not preempted, or not preempted, it it, it is um, hijacked, because of our sin. Okay? So, so that, that's, that's the imagery, the, the design that's going on here. Um, where was I? Um, so he says, let the, physio- let the physical part of that relationship satisfy you, but the exhilaration is with the relationship with her love in particular. So on your notes there, intimacy is exclusively for you and your spouse. Don't share it with anyone else. And notice verse 18, what we've been talking about. Intimacy is for the purpose of blessing yourself. It's not a selfish pursuit. And again, I, I think that's, that's the $100 takeaway today is where else are you going to hear that? God, who invented sexual intimacy, says, that's my design. Now what happens, watch this, this, this is amazing. What happens when a husband says, I'm going to make intimacy about blessing my wife? And what happens when a wife says, I'm going to make this intimacy about blessing my husband? What happens then? Both husband and wife are satisfied and they are drawn close together in the relationship. Right? What happens though if the husband says, this is for me, and he makes demands of his wife or he treats his wife um, as just an object to for him to be satisfied. What if a wife says, you know, I, I don't care. My husband's always want to do this and, and I want to do other things. You know, and, and she's being selfish in herself. What happens there? Then both spiral down in frustration and anger and, and a lack of satisfaction and contentment. So God's design is wonderful when both husband and wife die to themselves and think about pleasing one another. And when that happens, they both are exhilarated and satisfied in the relationship. Okay? Now, we've got to move on here. Um, it is interesting. Uh, that word intoxicated, you may have heard exhilarated. That means intoxicated. It literally means unable to walk straight. So how do you know, how do you know if you have a healthy Christian marriage? Are you exhilarated in your spouse in those moments? Uh, 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 we got to move on. Okay. Um, <clears throat> verse 19. Uh, we just saw this a minute ago. Intimacy is about the mutual enjoyment of your marriage relationship. It's not just a physical act. That, that's the be exhilarated always with her love. It's about enjoying the relationship. And then verse 20. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Uh, this is interesting here. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a play on words here. There's a word that's repeated. It's the word being led astray. It's um, the word that was there exhilarated or intoxicated, okay, is used again here 
but not to mean exhilarated or intoxicated. It, it means to be led astray. And, and, and what Solomon is saying is, is he's saying, son, th- again, this is, this, is, this is brilliant wisdom from Solomon and, and ultimately God who, who uh, inspired the text. He's saying, there is a danger in the power of sexuality. There is a danger in the energy and power and attractive influence that is a part of sexual relationship. And he says, because of that, if you're not careful, that power, that attraction, that energy will cause you to be led astray. You will pursue that in sinful contexts. And that's, that's what the play on words is doing here. The play on words, exhilaration, and also um, the uh, uh, led astray, okay? Um, that's what's going on. The difference between marital intoxication and that of immorality is that the adulterous relationship leads one astray while marital intimacy brings refreshment. Okay, that's that's the point to see here. Both acts of intimacy are intoxicating, and that's why Solomon warns his son to be careful. He says, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with somebody that... Why would you try to enjoy this when none of this is true? You know, um, uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6... Um, the one who joins him, his wife or joins himself to a prostitute is, is becoming one flesh with her. He's, he's not saying they're becoming married. What he's saying is you're, you're, you're uniting yourself in oneness in a way that only a married couple should be because of that covenant of oneness. So he says, why would you want to do that, son? Um, Embrace the bosom of a foreigner, exhilarated. Uh, So on your notes are the last one. Intimacy as God designed it is totally incompatible with sexual sin. Why would you do that? Um, Solomon's going to say one more thing. Actually, he's going to say a couple more things. Um, let me just introduce this for you, okay? That's a sort of a biblical view of intimacy. And parents, we need to be unfolding for our children, our grandchildren, uh, God's design so that they don't just hear, don't, 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 don't. They hear, learn, grow. And actually, that's if you're a teenager, you say, well, Pastor Keith, it's hard to just wait because I have these feelings. And yeah, I get it. Um, Am I just supposed to sit around and do nothing till I'm married? Absolutely not. What your role is right now is to pursue the character and the self-control and the maturity and the godliness that you need that will qualify yourself for marriage someday. Now, not, that's what you're supposed to be working on now. Not, not having girlfriends and boyfriends, not, not just going and messing around and getting emotionally involved and physically involved. Right now, a young person's sole focus is to grow in his walk or her walk with God and to develop godly character that is the prerequisite to enjoying both marriage and intimacy in that marriage one day. And wouldn't it be a tragedy, young man, wouldn't it be a tragedy, young woman, if you do meet the right person someday? And you're thinking, this is the person I've been praying for my whole life. And she says to you, or he says to you, you're just not mature enough. You need to grow up a little bit. So now's the time to work on those things. What is the most important principle of avoiding sexual sin? We find it in verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Paths, ways, those are metaphors for how you live. So young man, in, in, that, in that moment when you're on your phone or you're on your iPad or you're on your computer, 
Or, young lady, when you're thinking about that guy, when you're looking at that guy, when you're conversing with that guy, and the temptation for sexual sin arises, what is the ultimate deterrent? The ultimate deterrent is that you live in the face of God. You live in God's presence every moment of your existence. And in that bedroom, there may be no one human that's there, but your God is there. In that dorm room, in that apartment, in that car, what should arise up in your heart as sexual temptation arises is, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against my God? Because he's here. He's in the bedroom. He's in the apartment. He's in the dorm room. He's in the car. You live in his presence all the time. And that, and that does, isn't that, isn't God's presence wonderful? It, it, it's like when your dad walks in. There's, there's two sort of different reactions. If you're doing something you ought not do, or you're being tempted to do something you ought not do, when dad walks in the room, fear. And that's a good fear. That's a really good fear. When you realize as you're getting ready to commit sexual sin that God is there and that fear, that fear of the Lord arises in your heart, that's a wonderful godly fear. Follow that. Listen to that. But it also works the other way, right? To live in God's presence, to to live with Him always before you, as the psalmist says, when you are doing something that honors Him, something that pleases Him, even if no one else knows about it, your God knows. And He sees. And He's honored. Like, like, uh, like Jesus said, you go into your closet and you pray to your God who's in, you pray to your God in secret and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Okay? You know what this says, teenagers, parents? It says, that the best thing I can do to avoid sexual sin is to grow in my relationship with God in what this book has called the fear of the Lord, to live always in His presence. That's what Joseph did, right? Joseph said, how can I do this wicked thing? Not sin against Potiphar, although he would have, but sin against my God. How can I do this? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, how can we bow down and dishonor our God? Our God will save us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down to this statue and defile and demean and dishonor our God. Where does that come from? Where does the, the, you wonder this, where does the strength, the power in temptation come from when, when that temptation is overwhelming. It comes from your God inside of you and your love for and your fear and your desire to honor Him above all else. That's why a floundering Christian, a weak Christian, a Christian that's not growing, a Christian that's not maturing is an easy target. And if you're stuck, I just say, if you're stuck in a cycle of falling into temptation, I guarantee you this is part of the problem. Because when you're walking closely with your God, you have the strength to say no. So cultivate that Psalm 16 to set him always before you. Last thing, verse 22. Where was that? Uh, sorry, get, get caught up here. Live in the reality that God really is everywhere and sees everything. Live in the reality that God really is everywhere and sees everything. Verses 22 and 23. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin and he will die for the lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he will be led astray. How would you like that on your tombstone someday? He got wrapped up in the cords of his sin, in the greatness of his folly. What a fool! What, what, a, what a wasted life! That's what he says here. Be warned about the entangling nature of sexual sin that results 
in eternal death. Notice the metaphor. You're wrapped up in the cords of your sin. Sexual sin, like some other sins, has a way of just like strangling you. You get caught up in it. The deceit, the lies, the habits, the practices, the people that are involved, the the pornography, the adultery. You just get wrapped up in the whole thing and you can barely even move. That's the nature of getting caught up in sexual sin. And he says, son, don't even get started down that road because once you're entangled in it, it's very hard to get out. And this young man, Solomon says to his boys, will die because he has lacked instruction. That's interesting. He's not saying he didn't know better. What he's saying is he didn't heed the instruction. For lack of following the instruction is what he means. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. He will die in his sin. He will die in his foolishness. He will die unsatisfied. And and I've known some people like this, and you look back in their life, and there is a trail of people that they have hurt and harmed throughout their life. So Solomon pleads with his sons, don't end your life like that. And now is the time. Young person, now is the time to think about the end of your life and say, what kind of life do I want to have? What kind of testimony do I want to be? And to be following God, setting Him always before you, building character, building godly practices, growing in your faith so that you walk in fidelity and godliness in this area where you will be a spiritual dinosaur compared to your friends and peers. But you will be an instrument and a trophy of God's grace as you walk in sexual purity and in faithfulness. And then, Lord willing, one day you'll have a marriage That's a testimony of the very gospel itself. As you and your wife or you and your husband enjoy this, this most precious gift that so few couples ever discover. Let's pray for God's grace in that. Lord, we're grateful uh, that you are so clear and so uh, even embarrassingly detailed in this chapter because we need to understand your design and your grace that sexual relations in the context of marriage are a beautiful and wonderful and godly part of that that you designed and sexual sin of all sorts is terrible and wicked and perverse and it demeans your name and it destroys relationships lord i pray for those of us that are old people and we're married that we would pursue and live out as a testimony to the young people around us what it means to have godly and healthy marriages and that we would turn away from sexual sin as it comes and as we fight it. And Lord, for our young people, that you would help them to grow in the fear of the Lord and a love and a desire to honor you with their lives. And as they do and as they make these applications that we've seen here today, that you will keep them from sexual sin. And you will build them up in godliness. And they will be men and women who in marriages one day will bring you glory and honor and will enjoy the sexual part of their marriage relationship someday because you have graced them with the godly character that makes that possible. Lord, we appeal to your mercy for our young people that you would keep them off of this wicked temptation and path of sin. Build them up to be young men and young women that follow you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.